Welcome to all of you. Welcome to our guests this morning. Great to have many guests here and uh, also to those of you who are watching online tonight. Welcome to you in advance. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, just so, so great that uh, guests and our members can come. We can connect this morning on a beautiful day. Why we miss objects that are right in front of us. That was the title of a 2017 New York Times article. The article had a picture of a messy bathroom and asked you to click on the toothbrush. It's pretty obvious. The toothbrush sits right in front of the sink. When you click on it, however, two toothbrushes are highlighted by two pink boxes. The one you clicked on, a normal toothbrush, and the one behind it, a toothbrush that is ten times bigger that you didn't see. Now, the oversight, according to the author, has to do with scale. People have a tendency to miss objects when their size is inconsistent with their surroundings. This is in line with an abundance of recent research that shows how expectations dramatically affect our ability to notice what is around us. Sometimes this is called inattentional blindness. And it helps explain how dozens of people could walk by a tree overflowing with cash, even look directly at it without seeing the money. This was the unexpected result when a woman set out to make a video of people's responses to finding free money. And then it was confirmed by a real study performed by psychologists. And I guess the lesson there is that money does grow on trees. Well, the researchers conclude with both a positive and negative uh, message. On the positive, it's our brain's way of discounting potential distractions. But on the negative, the study is a reminder of how incorrect assumptions can inhibit our ability to see what is right in front of us. Now, incorrect assumptions play right into our next story from Luke's gospel. And let's see how. I'm going to begin in Luke 24, verse 13. You can follow along on your Bible app or on your Bible itself. But let's, if, you, if you're able, let's go ahead and stand and we'll read the word of God. Beginning in verse 13, Luke 24. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Uh, what things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah suffer, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It is nearly evening. Day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word. Take a seat. Thanks be to God for his word. Now, the question that screams out from this passage is, how did they not recognize Jesus? He spoke to them. He walked alongside of them. And because they missed Jesus, the passage feels honestly somewhat comedic, doesn't it? It's dripping with irony. First, the suggestion that Jesus was an out-of-town visitor to Jerusalem. Secondly, Cleopas and his unnamed friend are talking about Jesus to Jesus. Can you imagine that conversation? Here's Cleopas. Friend, here was Jesus, a prophet of God, who did all of these amazing things. He healed, he taught, and, and he did miracles, and they crucified him. Oh, really? Here we see Jesus nodding his head silently. Tell me a little more about this. I, the conversation just causes a smile to go across your face. And thirdly, this is exactly the role that Jesus plays. He's playing the part of the, of the naive visitor, shielding his identity, pushing the dialogue forward with his questions. And then the ultimate of all ironies, they told Jesus, we hoped, oh, we hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem all Israel. But alas, he died. As a Monday morning quarterback, we can't honestly read this without a smile coming to our faces. They missed the Messiah right in front of them. In a sense, Jesus is like the CEO who leaves his penthouse office and puts on the work clothes of the men and women in the mailroom. And he goes to the basement mailroom and he just hangs out with them to understand what's going on down there, what they're thinking and feeling. Or he's the, it's like he's the general who leaves his hideaway bunker, replaces his five-star uniform with that of a simple private, and then walks along the front line interacting with the soldiers there. But the frontline soldiers or the blue-collar workers have no idea. Or he is the good King Richard in Robin Hood, freed from prison and now moving amongst his men disguised, 
testing their loyalty and resolve. Now, I know these are not perfect analogies, but they can help us appreciate what is happening here. And what is true for the two men on the road to Emmaus, is it not also true for us? Do we not often fail to recognize Jesus when he is walking right alongside of us? Now, here's my outline for this morning. This is, again, in your sermon notes on the app. Three points to capture the movement of the story. One, why they missed Jesus. Two, how Jesus responded. And then three, the key to seeing Jesus. Take a look at verse 25. Take a look at verse 25. And while you're looking there, let me just pause for a moment and let's pray. Lead us in prayer. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to illumine his word for us, to make his word burn in our own hearts. Pray with me. Father, as we dig a little more deeper into this Jesus story, this gospel story, may the Holy Spirit ignite something in us that our hearts may burn to. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. Amen. Okay, again, why they missed Jesus. One. Two, how Jesus responded. And three, the key then to seeing Jesus. Look at verse 25. Did you capture this? That the Again, this is a comedic scene, but it takes this more serious pivot here when Jesus says how foolish you are and how slow to believe the prophets. Jesus does not use the word foolish casually. And in this verses 25 and 26, this answers the question on why they did not recognize Jesus. Two reasons. One, they had a partial, incomplete understanding of Scripture. And two, they had wrong expectations of the Messiah. First, a partial understanding of Scripture. Look at what Jesus says. You are slow to believe. Another version says, you find it so hard to believe. Do you see what he's getting at? This is not a knowledge problem. This is not an education problem. They knew the Scriptures. They read the Scriptures. They had the Scriptures, but they did not fully believe the scriptures. And why didn't they believe? It was a heart problem, not a head problem. They were unwilling to believe. Now, part of this, we know from the gospel narrative, was a tradition that had developed over many generations that they just accepted uncritically, unconsciously. And that is the same tradition that blinded the leaders who crucified Jesus, and it also hindered those closest to Jesus. They, they read the Bible through a filter. They read the Bible through a filter, a filter of what they desired or what they felt they deserved. Reading the Bible for how it serves us will inevitably twist its meaning. Think about the filter on a camera for a minute. A filter on a camera helps minimize glare 
and reflections. It enhances colors or it reduces light coming into the lens. It changes the picture. In the same way, their filters affected what they saw when they read the Bible, what they edited, how they interpreted. One of their filters was an exclusive nationalistic lens. And a purpose of Luke's gospel is to break down that filter, showing over and over again how the gospel was for everyone. But they read the Bible in a way that reinforced this false vision of ethnic superiority. God had not only chosen the Jews, they reasoned, but he blessed them based on their moral goodness. He blessed them based on their keeping the external formalities of the law. He blessed them based on their unique rituals of worship. No non-Jew could aspire to these, so they concluded the Bible was only for the Jews. It was not a book for all people everywhere. Now, if you think I am arbitrarily picking on the Jews, I am not, because we often do the same thing. But for the moment, let's go to the second reason. And that is that they had wrong expectations of what God's Messiah would do. They did expect the promised Messiah, a king and a savior who would lead them into cultural, political, and military prominence. God would set up his people to rule the world, they believed. This was indeed the prediction in their prophets. Yet notice what Jesus emphasizes in verse 26. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? When he says have to suffer, it points to a moral imperative. Jesus had often said about his death that he must die. It was not optional in God's plan of redemption. It was absolutely required. That the Messiah must suffer was right here in the Bible, in the prophets, in particularly Isaiah. But they missed it. They missed it. They saw the parts about the Messiah's kingly reign and their reigning with him and their ruling the world, but they did not see that the same Messiah must suffer. In other words, their reading of the Bible was selective. They read the Bible and edited it along the way according to their likes and dislikes. Now that's comparable to what happens today in our broader culture, isn't it? Our culture sets forth a moral compass, a belief in what is right and wrong, not based on objective truth, not based on facts, but whether I like it or dislike it. Such is our modern-day morality, and I can broadcast my modern-day morality by just a simple click on Facebook or a simple thumbs-up or thumbs down in a text. And many believers, many believers tend to think the same way, selectively dismissing what the Bible says based on I like it or I don't like it. This selective reading for them led them to wrong expectations of what the Messiah would do. And 
last example, it even skewed their view of redemption. Cleopas and his friend had just experienced what festival? The Passover festival, the most important of all Jewish festivals. And the highlight of Passover was the sacrifice of a precious lamb, a lamb that often became a friend to the family. And it was sacrificed. Its blood was shed in order to symbolize, to point to the need for forgiveness. The ceremony existed within the earliest childhood memories of every Jewish boy and Jewish girl. Sometimes that lamb may have been a close pet of a little boy or a little girl. So why should it surprise them that Messiah must die and shed his blood in order to achieve forgiveness? Well, with that incomplete knowledge of Scripture and with their wrong expectations of the Messiah, they miss Jesus. Now, the next thing that happens, the next movement in our story, is look at how Jesus responds to this. Second part of our outline, how does Jesus respond? It's interesting. It's very interesting. Having fully flushed out their dullness in a Columbo-like fashion, he does two things. He teaches and he demonstrates. Look at verse, I think it's 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. He taught them. Moses and the prophets refers to the entire Old Testament. And Jesus was showing them what they had missed, what they had read over. And he did this as they walked along. There was no need for a, a lectern or a or PowerPoint. It was all in Jesus' heart. Jesus did a lot of this for the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension to heaven. But not only did he teach them, he demonstrated his kingship. He acted. Look, as they approached their destination, they're, 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 again, in the story, they're approaching their place where they're going to stay, some home or some inn of some sort. And these two men, Cleopas and his friend, have been so excited by what Christ has taught them that they urge him, they beg him, stay with us. The sun is setting, dusk is falling, and they urge Jesus to have dinner with them. Look at verse 30. Now, this is actually verse 30. Let's go back and reread this. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Do you notice what Jesus did here? This passage seems strange. You feel like something is out of place, but you can't put your finger on it. The guest, Jesus, assumes the role of the host by taking the bread, by blessing it, and distributing it. Now think about this. What if a guest came to your home tonight for a dinner party? You prepared all day for it, after church, of course. And when everyone had sat down at the table, just as you are about to say, well, friends, thank you for coming, and 
Let's bow our heads and give thanks to God, and then I will serve and prepare the food. Just as you're about to do that, one of your guests gets up and says, I'd like to thank you all for coming tonight. I'm glad you're here. Let me go ahead and give thanks for the food, and then I'll go ahead and start serving it. The guest becomes the host. And I think that the act is so stunning that it wakes up Cleopas and his friend. And they finally recognize Jesus. We have been talking to the risen Jesus this entire time. Breathtaking. It might feel to some of you like that time you were struggling with a math or a physics problem. And then you have the solution. And it was there all the time, but it, just, it wasn't clear to you. Or the time when emotions are swirling around in your head like, like clothes in a dryer. And then you find that word or someone speaks that word to help you capture what that emotion is. Or when you've written the perfect lyrics, but you can't find the melody to carry the lyrics to the heart. And then you work at it, and all of a sudden the lyrics... The, the melody comes to you, and it's, it was there all the time, but then you discover it. It's a breathtaking kind of feeling, an inspiration of the moment. And what happens to Cleopas and his friend is similar, but it's different. And Luke wants to make sure that we don't, that we realize this. What happened was, you know, in all those situations, in the math and physics problem, or in the emotions, or in the lyrics fitting the melody, melody, you can rely on your own creativity or intelligence in order to create that moment. It's something you discover. But what Luke wants us to realize here is that we cannot recognize Jesus as the Son of God without divine revelation. And that's why, and this is actually good news. It's good news because it's not contingent on our intelligence or our creativity or on where we're from in the world. It's only contingent on us having a childlike faith and being willing to see. Being willing to see with a childlike faith. And the childlike faith is not based on faith. That's what you get in the movies. In the movies, you get faith based on faith, right? That's why, like, in that scene of Field of Dreams when... when Ray and his wife, they can all see the shoeless Joe and the baseball players playing, but the mean brother who's trying to take away the farm, he can't see them. Now, that's faith in faith. That's not the same thing. Jesus spoke the objective words, the provable, verifiable words of God to people, and our faith is not just based on faith, our magic our faith is based on what comes through the mind, the actual words of Jesus. That's what's taking place right here. So he demonstrates his kingship. And then he goes and they turn in verse 32 and they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us? Yes, these men were dull and thick-headed and slow to believe. But, but, but what allowed them to see past the blind spots of their tradition, 
What broke through their filters and selective reading was their spiritual hunger. When they engage with the scriptures, their hearts burn within them. A spiritual fire was lit. These men were still raw, but they were hungry. That's the difference. This is the one spiritual quality that sets all the disciples apart. You know, after spending so much time in Luke, it's been about a year and a half, friends. After spending so much time in Luke, we can say convincingly that on the part of the disciples, it was not because of their smarts or their talent or their polished character that Jesus chose them. It was not their wealth. Most were poor. It was not their urbane, sophisticated outlook on life. These were rough men from a peasant background, prejudiced. But the quality that they all shared was spiritual hunger. That is the key to seeing Jesus and recognizing his reality. That is a defining quality of a disciple, a drive, a hunger that is not satisfied easily, that is not satisfied with lesser things, and it is hearing the voice of Jesus through the scriptures that both creates and satisfies the hunger. It is hearing Christ speak to you through the scriptures that both creates and satisfies the hunger. Now, let me switch here to the final, my final thoughts. and I hope that gives us an understanding of the passage. Gives us an understanding of this narrative within the story of Luke that Luke just, the Holy Spirit places here. I think for us to smile a little bit, but for us also to reflect a little bit on why we miss Jesus. Let me share a few things here by application. Like I said earlier, we are like the Jews. We are human beings like them. We are like the, all, the early disciples. We all tend to read the Bible selectively. For example, we read in Psalm 67, which says, God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. There's two things there, right? There's a blessing and there's a responsibility. There's a blessing and there's a responsibility to take that blessing to the world. What do you and me tend to focus on? We tend to focus on the blessing, right? And we diminish selectively our responsibility. Another example, for many years, the evangelical church in America have emphasized, rightly so, verses on evangelism or on personal morality or on family life. But up to a few years ago, American evangelical church in a broad way was blind to verses on serving the poor, and there are so many of them. Somewhat blind to living a non-materialistic life that Jesus calls for. And somewhat blind to speaking up for those who are suffering injustice, be they the unborn or be they suffering from racism. We also tend to read the Bible with false expectations of gaining an earthly kingdom. As if the Bible existed primarily to ensure us a great marriage, to ensure us financial success, to ensure us um, sizes of homes beyond what we need, to 
to have brimming bank accounts, to have spiritual and academic all-stars for children, to be free of pain, to be overflowing with the spectacular works of God all the time. So if we are locked into a bad marriage, or if we hit upon financial stress, or our kids are spiritual strays, or they work ordinary jobs, if we're on the edge of bankruptcy, if we're not, if we don't receive healing, if we feel like all we ever do is serve people in ordinary ways and nobody notices me, then we can assume that our Messiah is MIA, missing in action. And we miss him if we assume the Messiah came to give us an earthly kingdom. We miss him when he is possibly the very closest to us he has ever been. At our point of need, are in the ordinary fabric of life. And we all tend to do this, to read the Bible through our filters, our prejudices, what we think we deserve. And what can drive us out of it? Spiritual hunger. To hear the voice of Jesus speaking through the scriptures. You see, did you see what Jesus said about the scriptures? And I'll say it again. We'll see it in Luke 24 in a couple of weeks, a little bit later. Jesus himself is the centerpiece of the scriptures. It is all about him. The Bible is not a pathway for you and me to build an earthly kingdom or click off a moral scorecard. It is a book designed for you to encounter Jesus, to hear his voice, to learn to love him, and to obey him from that love. Later in Luke 24, when Jesus gives us the shorthand version for his message to preach to the world, he simply summarizes it by saying, preach repentance and forgiveness in my name. Repentance and forgiveness in my name. That is the central message of the Bible. And friends, what we need is, is we need community. We need, number one, there's, there's, there's two pieces here to the equation. There are two parts of the equation about how this happens. One is we need communicators of the Bible to bring forth Jesus every time they preach. That's half the equation. As the friends on the road to Emmaus heard Jesus speak, it created in them a spiritual hunger and ironically, at the same time, a profound, deep satisfaction. Isn't that ironic? How's that happen? It lit a fire within them. It created a hunger. At the same time, it satisfied them. That's the mystery of the Word of God. It's power. Now, the other half of the equation, of course, is you having a hunger to meet Jesus through the Scriptures. To not read your Bible to fulfill a spiritual checklist, but rather to read your Bible as a way of expecting and hungering for and encountering the risen Christ. A hunger to hear him speaking. And friends, so when you read your Bible this week, when you read it for yourself, slow down. Slow down. And ask yourself, do I believe what I am reading? 
Do I believe the presence of Jesus is here in his word? Do I believe the presence of Christ is with me now? This is how we will experience the same thing Cleopas and his friend did. His words burning inside of us, lighting a fire inside of us. If you're in a dry season where Christ seems unavailable, Christ seems inaccessible to you, you don't sense him or hear him, don't give up. As a matter of fact, cry out, double down, and cry out all the more desperately. Don't give up. You know, dry seasons in our walk with Jesus are seasons of disillusionment when our earthly kingdoms fall flat to the ground. These are the very times Messiah can be closest to you. Jesus can be closest to you. These are the times when he's developing your faith. He's training your sense of hearing. And he's helping you see more acutely your true condition without him. Right? We eat when we're hungry. Right? One of our biggest problems is we don't realize how spiritually desperate we are. In times of disillusionment, when our earthly kingdoms fall, are a reminder of how desperately we need Jesus. We no longer have the illusion that we are in control of our lives. As long as we have the illusion that we are in control of our lives, we will fill our spiritual appetites with the wrong things, lesser things. And we can't really experience what Christ can give until we empty our stomach, so to speak, of those things. Let me close with a quote by a friar, Catholic friar, by the name of Simon Tugwell. He wrote a book called The Beatitudes, and it is based on the verse in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. <laughs> those who are self-satisfied, Jesus says, will go away hungry. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they, they, they will be satisfied. Here's what Simon Tugwell wrote. It is the desire of God which is the most fundamental appetite of all. And it is an appetite we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, but it will not go away. If we deny that it is there, we shall in fact only divert it to some other object or range of objects. And that will mean that we invest some creature, our creatures, with the full burden of our need for God, a burden which no creature can carry. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we have prayed uh, about what you would do here this morning, as we had prayed about the presence of your Holy Spirit coming just into this ordinary place, corner of a parking lot, here your Holy Spirit has come. And we trust that your Holy Spirit is speaking and your Holy Spirit is creating a hunger to connect with Jesus and to hear his words as spoken through scripture. 
and to believe that those words can both create and satisfy the deepest spiritual appetites that we have. Father, I remember the quote from A.W. Tozer that, God, you are big enough. You are big enough to satisfy the desire and the longings of our human nature. And I pray for my friends here this morning that we can all more deeply enter into that and to experience it. And it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Nick is going to give a few announcements and then I'll stay up here. And before we leave, we'll have a final blessing. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to all for uh, coming out and joining us this morning. Um, you know, when we were, traditionally, when we're inside, we have this thing called a connect card. And it's a piece of paper. And, you know, we ask you to fill out some information. You can do prayer requests and all of that on there. And obviously, we're trying to limit uh, passing things and passing germs. And so uh, we've been using this Bible app. And it's been a while since we've announced it. But um, if you have any prayer requests... Uh, you can, it's at the top of the app, you can click on it um, and begin to fill those out. And also, uh, we know that quite a few uh, new people in the community have been joining us since we've been outside. And uh, we would love it if you could go on there, if you're, uh, again, new or if you've been visiting the last several weeks. And just on that, do that virtual connect card. And somewhere in the prayer, uh, there's like a box for comments or prayers. If you could just write, you know, uh, visitor or something like that to let us know. Um, we, we would appreciate that. And for every one of those we get back, we're going to donate $5 to the Middle Ohio Food Bank, uh, which is an excellent organization in our community helping to provide food for those in need. And it's one we partner with for our food pantry. And, uh, and so we'll do that on your behalf. We'll donate to them. Um, for just simply being here today, you can be a blessing to those in our community. Um, and so that's one announcement. The next, though, is next week is a, a special service. Uh, again, if you've been coming to Lemworth for any length of time, you'll know that uh, four times a year, we do these things called celebration services whenever there's a fifth Sunday month. And that happens to be next week, August 30th. And uh, what we do there is it's, a, again, a little bit of a different service, but we'll have some baby dedications. Um, we'll have some baptisms. And then we'll also just have a time of sharing testimonies and celebrating as a church uh, different things that God's been doing in our midst. And so uh, you won't want to miss that next week. Uh, but with that, if you would like to be baptized, if you have... Uh, never taken that step in following Jesus, um, please, again, you can uh, fill out on that Connect card or you can email our office at office at limworthroadchurch.com and let us know that you're interested uh, in doing that and we will follow up with you this week. Um, there, again, there are other announcements there. Uh, there's quite a few actually. Uh, the men's ministry and also the women's ministry have different things going on. And there's a Bible study starting up here soon as well with Corey Bacher. And so you'll want to check out the rest of the announcements, and uh, we'll see you next week. Nick, thank you. Let's uh, stand for a final blessing. And again, if you're a recent guest here, just uh, feel free to raise your hands. One of the reasons we raise our hands during this time is a, is a way of picturing that we want to receive the blessing of God. And maybe I should say just this week, also fulfill our responsibilities, right? <laughs> to be a part of what God is doing here and to be a blessing to our world, to be a blessing to others. Let's receive the blessing. May the love of God, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of Christ be with you 
And may he send us into the world to be a blessing, to communicate repentance and forgiveness in his name. Amen. Amen. Go, go in peace.